Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message was given at the Church of Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. This message is certain to convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we're always happy to provide answers. Simply contact us at www.ellerslie.com. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message, and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen. I wanted to dedicate this message to a very, very precious uh, person in my life, and his name is Hudson. Uh, yeah, that's you, buddy. Hudson just got uh, braces on Friday. So, yeah, it's a big deal. Uh, and... Uh, so Hudson will know, and any of you that have hung around Ellerslie long enough will understand why I'm dedicating a message called The Summer Spot to Hudson, because it comes from a Hudson quote, and you know, I would love for Hudson to grasp what is in this message. It's a great message for the construct of discipleship, to understand how growth works unto full maturity, and this comes from a quote. We were, I was, I think we had students coming over one night at our house, and I went into the backyard, and, you know, there's just kid stuff all over the place. If you have young kids, you know how this works. You clean up, they make a mess. Uh, and, you know, you think you've gotten it all cleaned up, and you go outside, and they slipped outside when you were cleaning up the inside and spread a few things around. So I was back there, and there was this log on the back porch, and it had some blue chalk on it, and so I looked at it and figured that should not belong where it's at, and so I brought it to the side where all the other wood uh, was, and Hudson came out later and said, hey, where's my summer spot? And I go, your, your summer spot? He goes, yeah, it's a log, and it has blue chalk on it. I go, oh, yeah, well, I took that around the side of the, the building. Uh, it's your summer spot? He goes, Yeah. He goes, I sit on it and mind my own business. <laughs> oh, okay. We could all use a summer spot. So now you officially understand what this message is about. You need to find your summer spot. I know someone may have taken it from you and hidden it, and you're in search of it right now. But you need to learn to mind your own business. You see, when we hear that, that typically is translated as get, out of, get your nose out of issues that don't pertain to you. And that's, that's one way it can be looked at. At the other side of the coin is you have business that you actually need to mind. And if you don't mind your business and you don't tend to it well, your business is going to fall apart. You're going you're gonna to end up going bankrupt in this business. And so as a result, there's two sides to this. Keep your nose out of things that don't matter to you and that aren't your business, but at the same time, tend to your business well. So this is the summer spot. <clears throat> Key word that we're going to unpack, and this is a governmental word. When I used to teach constitutional law, this is absolutely one of the most important concepts to understand, to understand law, to understand constitutional government, the republic that's... Uh, should I say, that we do have in America or that we did have in America. But the concept is jurisdiction, jurisdiction, juris, and then diction. If you're good with your etymology and your root words, you'll recognize diction. Diction is articulation, speech, the ability to make something clear or understandable, to speak. Juris is going to be legal 
territory. It is a legal matter. And so you recognize the word like jurisprudence. Well, maybe that word isn't very familiar either. But juris, a legal speaking. So let me give you a little more flavoring for it. It's the sphere of the territory for which you have say. There is an area of your life where you actually have say. You have a responsibility over it. And if someone comes in and tells you what to do in that area, it's like, excuse me, that's my business. It's my business how I think. When someone says, you need to do this in your mind. You need to do this. And you're like, hey, it's my mind. I can do with it what I want. However, all things are under the ruling territory of God. And so as we begin to understand this, there's a principle that God has jurisdiction over all. And yet, he gives us sub-jurisdictions, ruling territories. And so we're going to walk through this because this is a very unique concept that for whatever reason has been lost. When, when government in a culture is highly understood biblically, jurisdiction is clearly understood. However, when you begin to fall apart intellectually and you begin to fray at the seams governmentally in a culture and the biblical framework for government is removed, jurisdiction is the first violation. In other words, the federal government begins to stick their nose in your living room. Things like that. You see, if you come over to my house and discipline my kids, what could I say? That's not your jurisdiction. And it would make sense. You know that if Hudson started disciplining Kipling, it's not his jurisdiction. He'd say, hey, I'm a looty. Yeah, but it's not your position or your place. You do not have a place to say something in this situation. It's not your sphere for which you have say. You see, it doesn't mean you can't care and you, you don't desire it to be made right. It's just that you need to know your proper place. You need to know your business and you need to know what belongs to other people. What is Hudson's business? So let's do an analysis on Hudson. Uh, the sphere or territory for which Hudson has say. This is a fascinating study. He's eight and a half years old. So when Hudson is zero, he's just born, just pops out of the womb, and he's, uh, he's crying, and you know this is when his neck does not have any stability, and you're holding it up, and they're handing little Hudson to daddy, and daddy is afraid that he's going to break the little guy. That's a scary moment for a dad, especially a first-time daddy. But Hudson is zero, has zero say. He really has no jurisdictional right or control. He's a baby. He doesn't understand what he wants. He said, well, you need to listen to him, Daddy, because he needs food, and he's going to cry, and he's going to tell you that. But he has no ability to define the Ludi household. The Ludi household he's coming into, he cannot rule the, the Ludi household. He must submit, in a sense, to the way the Ludi household runs. Now, I will be sensitive to his cries, but I'm going to train him into this environment to have him recognize you're not in control here, little one. And it's because I love you that I want you to know that. You see, you are not wise enough. You are not mature enough to run a household. So therefore, you need to come into an environment and learn that you do not have any jurisdiction. That said, Hudson at six months begins to gain jurisdiction. Now, it's not a big territory for him to have say over, but he gets a little blanket and it's set in the middle of the floor and he's, you know, flopped on it. This is blanket time. And tummy time is what it's oftentimes called by parents, tummy time. So he has a little blanket, you know, and he can move around on that blanket, and he can do whatever he wants in that blanket. He can spit up on the blanket, and mommy and daddy will come in and clean up his blanket. In other words, he has a little territory, and he's told to stay on it. Now, it's pretty easy to have him fulfill his role in that jurisdiction because he can't move very well. 
he's starting to learn to roll over, and then you, you have to be watchful of that. But little ones are learning their territory. For instance, he reaches for a socket, uh, you know, an outlet, and you go, no, no, that's a no-no. You're not allowed to touch that. That's not in your jurisdiction to mess around with light sockets. And so he does not have access to certain things. He does not have say over certain aspects of the house. Hudson at one year. Now, I may get some of this wrong. If Leslie was here, she'd say, we really need to refine your list here, Eric. You're giving him way too much jurisdiction way too quick. But this is just my guess. It's, It's hard to remember. When you're going through it, you remember it very clearly. But when it's been eight and a half years, you can't remember it as clearly. Hudson at one year. Well, he can now be in his room with the door open and the monitor on. Now, he's probably in his crib, too. However, mommy and daddy, as long as there's a monitor on, can give him space. And he has a whole crib to roam around. And sometimes it's even the floor of the room, and he has a little truck, and he's zooming it around. And as long as he behaves within that jurisdiction that he's been given, we will continue to allow him to have it. In fact, we will look for opportunity to continue to grow that jurisdiction. Hudson at two years, room with door closed and monitor on. Could you imagine allowing a child to be in a room with a door closed? Now, Leslie may say, we did not do that at two. I don't remember, but I'm giving you the progression. (laughs) In other words, the child's jurisdiction is growing in accordance with the child's maturity and readiness. You do not give a child an opportunity or a jurisdiction beyond what they're ready for. For instance, I do not say, okay, Hudson, it's time to make dinner, and he's like one year old. And so I say, here's the stove, the gas stove. Just turn this knob. Here's the microwave. You see, you do not give opportunity or jurisdiction and a ruling territory that is beyond their readiness. Otherwise, you are going to harm the child. Hudson at four years. Well, he gets a big boy bed at, at, at night and with monitor on. See, he doesn't have the monitor off. There still is a need for some monitoring of his life. But he's in a big boy bed. You know what that means? He could slip out in the middle of the night and creep around the house. Well, so that's uncomfortable for mommy and daddy to ponder, which means we have to have a show of a certain level of maturity for him to get that big boy bed. Hudson at six years, he starts to get daily chores. He's making his own bed. He's brushing his own teeth. And daddy's very conscientious about his teeth. And Hudson knows that. Did you get that tooth in the back? Uh, Did you scrub really good in the front? Yes, daddy. Uh, All right. I'll let you keep brushing your teeth as long as you keep brushing them well. I'm going to watch you. Every now and then I'll poke my head in and do an audit on his brushing session. It's like, uh-huh, all right, that wasn't bad. He's gaining jurisdiction. Oh, now it's over his teeth. Remember, he started with zero jurisdiction. Now he has teeth, his own teeth that he can take care of. Hudson at eight years old. Okay, here's, here's about where we're at. Able to help with the house with low-level governance over young, younger children. In other words, he can actually oversee younger children, but typically we're like in the other room. But I might say, Hudson, could you make sure that everything goes smoothly in here? And he takes that job seriously. Able to go outside without supervision. See, when he was younger, he, he can't just run out because we have a lake behind our house. You can't just run out in our house and do whatever. But now Hudson actually can go out without supervision. He goes down and gets the mail. He, you know, he has a certain freedom. He has a jurisdictional increase. Low-level access to the computer and supervised access to daddy's power tools. You see, when you have things, it's like I'm actually open to Hudson beginning to work with things as long as there is daddy present now. And what's that going to increase to? I don't even need to supervise him anymore because he's actually begun to show me that he will prove faithful with what he's been entrusted. Hudson at 12 years. And you could say, well, he's only eight and a half. I know, we're growing up real quick here. 
Maybe he's able to watch over other children, able to drive the riding lawnmower. He's been asking about that. Excited about that, buddy? Uh, Able to grill hamburgers on the grill. And if Izzy Lozada was going to speak, he'd say, Eric, you don't even know how to do that. (laughs) I didn't say I can't do it. I'm just saying I'm not good at it, okay? Able to utilize daddy's power tools without supervision? Are you serious, Eric? This guy had zero jurisdiction when he was first born. You're actually going to allow him to do that? It's called maturity. And of course is the answer. That's what a parent does. A parent is looking to increase jurisdiction because what am I training my child to be? Independent of me. I want him to grow up to be an adult so that he can actually handle his own life without me monitoring him. That's what we do. Hudson at 16 years, able to drive daddy's car, able to handle adult-sized projects with supervision, able to run a business with minor adult supervision, you know, that uh, lawn mowing business or the, uh, sho- you know, the driveway shoveling business. Yeah, I might check on it and do some audits. Like, you did good, buddy. That's excellent. You know, there's, there's minor supervision, but guess what? I think he's old enough to begin to do this. Able to make sizable decisions as long as those decisions are checked off first with daddy and mommy. Now, Hudson's reaching 18 years. He's entering the adult apprenticeship season, able to be transferred from daddy's and mommy's jurisdiction into the direct jurisdiction of the word of God, able to make decisions on his own, though honoring towards his parents and considering their counsel as sizable and significant. However, if I'm giving him his own jurisdiction, guess what? He could rebel and could just go off and say, I don't want to hear your counsel anymore. That's a possibility. But if he's trained well, he's going to understand he's still a novice. He's still young. And so he's going to say, look, I really appreciate the freedom you're giving me, but I, I feel vulnerable. I feel young. Could you help me? Could I come to you for counsel? And we say, absolutely. That's what we want. But we want to train you to be responsible for your own life now. And so what we're doing is we're transferring him into adulthood, which means he's coming under his own jurisdiction, but he's not on his own. He's under the word of God. He's under the supervision of God Almighty. And so this is a challenging thing for every parent. And every parent, it's not just an age, like 18, that that means they're ready for it. A parent must measure and understand when they're ready to release them into that maturity. So aware of his youthfulness and therefore quick to seek help from those older and wiser and desirous to never violate the opinion of Scripture on any matter. Hudson at 22. Boy, this guy is really growing up. He's able to move forward with marriage. Whoa! You're going to get married? Oh, wow. Having proven mature in his decision-making as a young adult, he is ready to expand his jurisdiction to include a wife and children. You see, he went on his own and began to have his own jurisdiction. He's learning how to handle his thought life, learning how to handle his life, learning how to handle his laundry. And he is proving faithful. So his governing authorities, whether they be the church or whether it be his parents, that are saying, look, we're here for counsel. We want to give you as much guidance as we can. And he submits to us. And he says, do you think I'm ready? I say, I think you are. I think you are ready for marriage. You've proven faithful in what you've been entrusted with little. And so now you can handle more. Hudson at 30 years old. Wow. Able to carry the weights of spiritual leadership in the church. Having proven mature in both his marriage, the raising of his children, and the handling of the scriptures, he is ready to expand his jurisdiction to include greater responsibilities. Hudson at 40 years. Well, guess what? If he proves faithful with the church responsibilities or the spiritual leadership that he has, guess what, that hap- what happens to it? It begins to expand too. What happens in 60 years? 
Maybe he's over 10 churches. What happens at 80 years? Maybe he's a father of the faith in his generation. He's a pastor of pastors. This is just how it works. But you don't start with the jurisdiction that an 80-year-old can have at one. You grow up unto it. It increases over time. So I've just given you an overview of where we're headed. This is Hudson's business. This is what he is to mind. Now, he's not 80 years old. He's eight, so he needs to know what his business is now and not try and be an 80-year-old. He's not ready for that yet. However, if he's faithful with the little that he has now as an eight-year-old, he will be over much as an 80-year-old. So let's start talking about something very important in Scripture, judgmentalism. It's a very difficult topic to deal with, and it's a, I call it the yuck of judgmentalism because it is a yucky topic. If any of you have ever been called judgmental, it's not a compliment. Uh, if anyone ever said, you're judgmental, they weren't paying you honor when they said that. So all of us are afraid of actually ever being judgmental. And so we have this concept of judging in Scripture. And as Christians, it's like, we just don't touch that stuff. And so what I want to do is I want to just hit this square on. Because the concept of judging is what it means to mind your own business well. In other words, you have a judging territory. Your territory that you are put in charge of, you are responsible to judge within it. However, when you judge outside of that territory, for instance, Hudson has a judging territory. It's his own thought life, his own heart, his bedroom, his bed, his toys, his Lego collection. He has a judging territory. And how he handles that is very important. But if he starts making judgment outside of that and starts disciplining Kipling, he is violating his judging territory. And as a result, we would say, judge not, Hudson, lest ye be judged. You see, he's going outside of his jurisdiction. So jurisdiction is critical to understand how the Bible lays this out. The yuck of judgmentalism. There's our classic scripture. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. Whoa, we don't want to judge. You know who said that? That's Jesus. I, I would declare to you right now that's canon, that's authoritative. We bend our knee and we say, absolutely, we will not judge that we be not judged. We, are, we do not want to violate that. However, every scripture in the Bible still needs to be interpreted in light of its context and in light of its meaning. In other words, it says this, and this is true, but we need to understand its context, and we also need to understand the context of the rest of the Bible. The making of a heavenly judge. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Well, there's some of the context that we're dealing with. Judge not, lest you be judged. You're trying to take a speck out of someone else's eye, and you're not dealing with your own eye. You see, you need to mind your own business first, so that you will see clearly to help someone else with their business. You see, most of us start with other people's business and fail to ever mind our own. And as a result, someone really should give a sermon to you that says, mind your own business. Find your summer spot and sit on it. 
You see, we are outside of our territory where we can see correctly and have any voice to properly address the issues. Krino. So this is our Greek word for the day. To decide with governing authority, to oversee and arbitrate what is truth and what is error, to bring finality of judgment, to determine punishment and sentence based on revealed evidence. That's a pretty strong and stout word there. You know when Jesus says, judge not, lest ye be judged? That's the word, crino. And so most of us are like, oh, crino bad. We don't want crino. However, if you were to study the rest of the New Testament usage of this word, you begin to realize it's not all bad. And so as a result, we need to understand what Jesus is saying in Matthew 7. Because are we, just think about this, are we supposed to decide with governing authority in life at all? Imagine in my family, if there was no crino in my family, if there was no judgment in my family, my kids begin to behave contrary to what they're supposed to be doing, and I just say, well, I can't judge. And do you imagine I'm disciplining Hudson, and he looks at me and says, hey, before you discipline me, Daddy, and bring judgment on me, bring punishment for what I've done and make a decision, uh, I just want to say to you, Matthew 7, judge not, Daddy, lest you be judged. Whoa. And so I'm about to do some discipline. I'm like, whoa, that's a good point, buddy. I can't make a decision in this home. I can't govern with authority to oversee and arbitrate what is truth and what is error, to bring finality of judgment, to determine punishment and sentence based on revealed evidence. I can't do it. Oh, no. And we have anarchy in the Ludi home. You see, there must be judging. And yet Jesus says, do not judge. Oh, no, we have an issue. Or do we? Let's walk through it. So here's our Matthew 7, 1 through 2 scripture with judging removed and the word crino stuck in it, okay? Crino not, that you be not crinoed. For with what crema, which means the sentence of condemnation, you crino, you shall be crinoed. Not quite the sentence. Grammatical variations of tense and voice. To make this uh, message work, I'm going to have to take some liberties grammatically with the word crino. So we're going to have crino, and then we'll have crinoine, and we'll have crinoed and crinos. Just so you know, it's my liberty that I'm taking to the text to make it make sense. If I, if I don't do that, it sounds really funny. Okay, so, but it's my addition. So here we are. We've just read Matthew 7, verses 1 through 2. And it made it very clear. If any of you thought that Jesus wasn't clear, you weren't reading it. He said, do not judge, lest you be judged. With the same measure you are bringing that judgment, you will be judged. So watch out and don't judge. Okay, I got your point. I'm not about to crino. I'll never do it, God. And then Eric puts the next slide up, which says, strangely it appears in Scripture that we are to judge. I know this seems like a contradiction at first. However, the Bible never contradicts itself. Jesus declared to Israel, I crino. What? Jesus. Oh, no, didn't you hear yourself speak in Matthew 7, verses 1 through 2? You can't do that. You can't tell us not to do something. Then you go off and do it. Talk about a double standard. I crino, and my judgment is just. Whoa. Jesus said to his apostles that they also shall crino? Oh, no. Jesus, we need to go back to Matthew 7, 1 through 2. You said we cannot crino, didn't you? 
We shouldn't crino. But you're telling the apostles that they shall crino? And it's an also too. In other words, I crino, and you will too. What? I don't want to do that. That's bad. Are we sure that it's bad? Jesus said to his apostles that they will sit on thrones crinoing? What a strange behavior to take to heaven. I mean, if it's not fit for this earth, why in the world would we lug it up there? Jesus commands those of Israel to crino with righteous judgment. The apostle James declared that he crinoed. Doesn't it sound like a confession session? It's like everyone's getting up and James says, guys, I just need to get this off my chest. I crinoed too. And everyone's like, (gasps) the apostle James says that he crinoed. The apostles and elders which were at Jerusalem crinoed. How could they? How dare they? The apostle Paul declared that he crinoed and that he is crinoed. Oh, Paul. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians 5. The apostle Paul declared to the church in Corinth that they are to crino them that are within the body at Corinth and that the saints shall crino the world and that if the world shall be crinoed by the saints, then are the saints unworthy to judge the smallest matters? And if the saints shall crino angels, how much more the things that pertain to this life? And then Paul exhorts them to crino the things he said. So after saying all of that, he says, and by the way, I want you to bring judgment on what I'm saying right now. I want you to examine it and test it for error and truth. You're not supposed to do that, though, I thought. Okay, in every behavior, there is a flesh way of doing something, and there's a spirit way of doing something. What Jesus condemns in Scripture is working from the flesh. And if you judge and crino from the flesh, Jesus says, do not do it. And we'll walk through that scripturally. However, we are commanded to crino. And so how can they both be true? Well, that's the way that the spiritual life works. You see, you are not supposed to do anything out of the flesh. You're supposed to do all things out of the spirit. The right to a fair trial. Nicodemus said to the priests, does our law crino any man before it hear him and know what he does? So you go back to the Old Testament law and there's very clear construct. Our our constitutional government is based on the premise of the right to a fair trial. Where do we get that from? We get that from the Bible. You see, you do not bring judgment without fair trial. You make sure that those that are being accused are also able to offer some defense. And so there's, it's a fair trial. It's very interesting, but Jesus came to this earth and he crinoed. Now some of you could say, no, no, no. Eric, did you not read the scriptures on this? It said that Jesus did not come to judge the world, but to save it. Uh-huh. And it also says that he came to this earth and judged. But what he judged was not you. But he did judge something. You know that Jesus offered a fair trial to Satan? He offered a fair trial to sin. He offered a fair trial to the flesh. And he found them guilty. And on the cross, he brought judgment. That same cross which saves you brought judgment to the devil, to sin, and the flesh. Isn't that interesting? We're looking at Jesus being all nice and tender coming down. But what did he do? He crushed the head of the serpent. Whoa! We don't oftentimes look at it from that angle. You know what he did? He brought judgment. Jesus is a judge, 
And when he came, he judged, but he judged rightly. He judged fairly. The devil had his season. He was put on trial, and his fruit was made manifest. And Jesus came down and judged that devil. The works of the devil were made manifest. Jesus came to the earth to crino the devil and his works. He that commits sin is of the devil, it says in 1 John 3. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now, we also know that he was manifested and came to seek and save that which is lost, which is us. But one of the key things that the cross was about and why Jesus came to this earth was to bring judgment on the devil, to destroy the works of the devil. The works of sin in the flesh were made manifest. Jesus came to the earth to crino the old man and the power of sin. Therefore, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. So what did the law do? The law exposed the exceeding sinfulness of sin. And then what did Jesus do? He brought judgment on it. He exposed it, and then he judged it. He made it clear, this is wrong. It is against my nature and against my law. Therefore, he judged it. The first judgment, it's called the cross. Now, most of us, when we look at the cross, we look at it as the opportunity for salvation, which it is. But it is also a judgment. We have two key judgments, the cross and the final judgment. When Jesus returns again, there is another judgment. And that will be our judgment. But the first judgment was for the devil, for sin and the works of the devil and the flesh, the old man. The first judgment, the cross. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And if I... And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. What's he talking about? He says, now is the judgment of this world. Well, what's he he talking about? He's talking about the cross. Everything about that is about the cross. Jesus says the time for judging has come. And we're like, what? That seems to contradict the fact that he says, no, I didn't come to judge the world. But he did come to judge. He just wasn't judging us. The two-tiered work of Jesus... The first coming, to save that which was lost and to judge the devil's sin and the flesh. But let's look at the second coming. To judge that which opposes the Savior and to save that which is born of faith. I'll go back through those again. The first coming, to save that which was lost. That's us. And to judge the devil's sin and the flesh. And we're like, yeah, good news. And then there awaits another judgment. And then the second coming, it's to judge that which opposes the Savior. You see, there is a season, an opportunity, a fair trial, if you will, that has been given, that we would behold the work of grace, that we would behold the work of the Son of God who came to seek and save that which was lost. But if you reject that work, if you do not heed that work, if you blaspheme that work, Then there is a judgment for those that oppose the Savior. But in that second coming, he will save that which is born of faith. So let's look at the first coming. The first coming was to offer rescue, to extend the love and mercies of God toward the world, 
to bring judgment on the devil, sin, and the flesh. For God sent not his son into the world to crino the world, but that the world through him might be saved. There's a lot of scriptures on this. That's just one of them. So to make this message even manageable, we're trimming it down quite uh, extensively. The prince of this world is crinoed. Well, when was that happening? That's the cross. So for those of us that are all against judging, we need to just remember Jesus judges. And Jesus judged. The very time that he was on this earth saying, judge not, he's judging. So we need to recognize that it is actually a behavior of heaven to judge. But there is also a perverted judging that Jesus strictly condemns. And if you function in that form of judging, you are the antithesis or the antichrist of Jesus' nature. And that form of judging, he is against. So the prince of this world is crenoed. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Whoa, that's a pretty strong word. You know, that's right after there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. We're always like, no condemnation. And look what Jesus is doing at the cross. He's bringing condemnation, but not to you. You see, if you're in Christ, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ, those who are shielded in his righteousness. But God's sending his own son, this is two verses later, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. The good news is not that God doesn't judge. It's that he does judge. And he did judge. However, he didn't judge us. He has made a way for us to be rescued. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, the body of sin might be destroyed. Oh, that's a pretty harsh thing for loving, merciful, gentle Jesus. He's destroying the body of sin. He's a good judge. He came down and did what good judges do. That henceforth we should not serve sin. So now let's look at the second coming. The second coming is to judge in righteousness. To bring penal justice to this earth. And to bring salvation to those who believe in the Son. Because he hath appointed a day in which he will crino the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, Jesus, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. In the day when God shall crino the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. There's a day, and it's called the judgment day. The crino day. Isn't that interesting that here Jesus is like, hey, don't do any of this, this judging thing. It's like he has a whole day in the calendar of eternity called the Crino Day. The day when Crino is brought properly. You see, when God judges, he judges perfectly. When we judge, especially before we come to Jesus, we judge very imperfectly. And as a result, this world is in chaos because we are dealing with things improperly. However, when we come to Jesus Christ... He begins to train us how to properly crino, how to properly judge. He begins to train us about our territory that we have. And he says, mind this business and mind it well. If you mind this well, I will then give you rule over greater territory. But if you cannot handle this small territory known as the human body, I'm not about to give you ruling territory over anything else. And that goes with all the parables, by the way. That's what he says. 
So how does this affect us? Therefore, creno nothing before the time, until the Lord come, who both will bring the light to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsel of the hearts. And then shall every man have praise of God. So with statements like this, wouldn't you understand why people would come to the conclusion that we should never, as Christians, ever make final, arbitrary decision? We should never make any decisions to say, this is, this is just actual, this is fact, we need to bring punishment on this. Therefore, creno nothing before the time. What is this talking about? This is talking about the eternity of people's souls. Do not make a judgment on where people stand. Do not make a judgment of where their soul will be. That is not your business. Your business isn't to define, yes, they're a sheep, they're a goat. It's God, it's Jesus who divides sheep from goats. You don't. That isn't your place. Mind your own business. There's a summer spot with a little blue chalk on it. You need to find that and sit on it. Know your position. It is not to make arbitrary decision in regards to people's eternity. That is God's business. That is God's jurisdiction. It is not yours. Do not crino in any of those matters. An improper crinoing. So this is when crinoing goes wrong. What does Jesus say? Uh, you crino after the flesh. Well, there's where it went wrong. You see, crinoing after the old man, after the pattern of sin, is so utterly destructive. And so Jesus says, you crino after the flesh. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that crinos. For when it, wherein thou crinos another, thou condemns thyself. For thou that crinos does the same things. And think thou this, O man, that crinos them which do such things, and does the same, that thou shalt escape the crema, the sentence of condemnation of God? You see, what is it talking about? It's talking about someone who is making assessment and judging other people, yet is doing the same thing. It's called hypocrisy. It's what Pharisaism was. They are making assessments of people's lives and souls, and they're judging, and meanwhile, they're doing the same thing. And God explicitly goes out of his way to say, that is judging after the flesh, and that is detestable in heaven. Do not crino that way. The plank-eyed and the speckless. Now, do you remember what it said in Matthew 7? Right in the very beginning, it says, judge not, lest you be judged. And then it goes on to give some context to it. And it talks about planks uh, in eyes. And it says, look, you have a plank in your eye and you need to get that out because you're trying to go in and get this little teeny speck out of someone else's eye, but you can't see clearly because you have a plank in yours. And so the plank-eyed and the speckless. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite! First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Did you that last line? That's all big for us. You know what it says? If you remove the plank from your eye, did you know that you will actually see clearly? And what can you do if you're seeing clearly? You can help remove the speck from someone else's. You see, as a pastor, did you know that that's one of the things I get to participate in? Is I 
participate in the work of your soul by bringing truth to say, if you have a speck in your eye, we need to get it out. In other words, there's an increased jurisdiction that I've been given to participate in people's souls that other people don't have. And that's just how it works. But I didn't start with that. There was an ever-increasing expansion to jurisdiction. Jurisdiction. The five key places where crinoing is both used and abused. So we'll call jurisdiction any ruling, deciding, judging territory. In early American history, the question was always, whose jurisdiction is it? That's the key question in government. So if you have a child that's acting up and they need a little discipline, the question of the American society would be, whose jurisdiction is it? And they would immediately look at the parents and say, that's your situation, buddy. Can you deal with it? If it gets out of hand, then it becomes the local government's situation. If that gets out of hand, then it becomes the state government's situation. If that gets out of hand, then it comes to the federal level. But, hey, let's deal with it in the home, with the family. And technically, if it's a Christian situation, if that family is having trouble, you know where they come under the jurisdiction of? The church. And the federal government can't invade in that matter either. This is a church issue. It's not a federal government issue. Get your nose out of here. Mind your own business, government. Sit on your summer spot. This isn't your spot to be tending, okay? And that's how jurisdiction works. You have to understand your territory. So let's look at the different jurisdictions. Self, you know, you might not feel like you have a lot of jurisdiction, a lot of territory that you're responsible for. However, you do have territory. Your own thought life, your own heart, your own emotions, your own body. You know that you're responsible for tending to this well? This is what you've been entrusted. In fact, if you do not tend to your own body well, you shouldn't get married. I know that might sound harsh, but if you can't tend to the first territory that you've been given, you shouldn't be given any more territory. You see, you're going to stink in marriage if you can't first succeed in handling your own body. And so, as a matter of principle, you prove with the little you've received that you're ready for an increase of jurisdictional territory. This is how self-governance works. So self, the territory of your own soul. Family, the territory of your own home, which could be marriage. It could be having children. But you have an actual home. And that has jurisdictional rule to it. For instance, as a father, I have a home. I have a family. I have a wife. And I have children. And how I prove with that wife and those children defines if I'm even ready for the church. And if I am failing in ruling my own home, then don't put me in charge of the church. That's what the Bible says. How will you know if a man is ready to lead the church? Look at his home. If he can't manage his own home, well, then he's not going to manage the church well. I mean, it's just sort of logic, isn't it? If a man can't govern his own life well, he's not going to govern his marriage and his family well. So let's go back to the first things. Precept upon precept, line upon line, let's make sure that the man first is governing his own life well. Business, the territory of your own work responsibility. Church, the territory of a flock of believers. Civil government, the territory of earthly governmental rule. And that could be at the local level, little township. It could be at the uh, state level. It could be at the federal level. And technically, someone could have you know, more governance over multiple nations. Uh, and Jesus has rulership over all. And so all things are under his feet, which means he has jurisdictional rule over all things. 
the five kinds of krinos. So first it mentions in scripture the krinos of heaven. A krinos that belongs only to God. This is not your krinos. You do not wield krinos at the judgment day. This is God's krinos, his position. A krinos that belongs only to God, judging matters that we are not able to see and know. You do not understand what God understands. You do not see what God sees. So you're not in a position to make decision on certain matters. One of those key matters is the state of someone's soul. That is not something you understand. You can see fruit and you can make assessments of things. However, you are not understanding the full picture. Number two, the krinos of earth. An authority bequeathed by men to men for civil business and social order. You know, Nero may not have feared God, he may not have loved God, he may not have respected God, and he harmed and harassed and made miserable the life of many Christian believers in the early uh, century. And yet, God even respects his jurisdiction. You see, there's a jurisdiction of this earth, and there's a man over it, known as Nero. And he has jurisdiction. And how he handles that jurisdiction, he's responsible for. And God will bring judgment on him for it. However, he still has a jurisdiction. A krinos that is established by men, men setting men over men, an allocated earthly authority and defined jurisdiction to judge and decide in other men's matters. God imparted krinos for order on earth. So we have men's order on earth, and God will even say that, you know, respect that. Show honor to it. Pay tribute unto it. However, if it ever forces you or that krinos on earth ever asks you to violate a higher krinos of Jesus' authority and rule over your life, you will civilly disobey and not submit to it. You're a Christian. There's one king of kings, and that's Jesus. If anyone ever tries to usurp that position, you cannot bend your knee to that. However, there's a God-imparted krinos for order on earth. So in the midst of this chaos known as earth, God establishes his church. And within that church, he actually gives authority. It's called, remember the 12 apostles? He gave them authority. He gave them jurisdiction to rule something known as the church. And the church is still in existence 2,000 years later. And there is krinos, judging territory that is given, jurisdiction that is given to the saints of God to manage and to keep the body of Christ healthy. So God imparted krinos. Well, he gives it to self. In other words, we're responsible to rule ourselves. Marriage, family, and the church. A krinos that brings order and righteousness to the soul, the marriage, the family, the church, and the society in which we live. A krinos that works humbly and authoritatively within its assigned jurisdiction. Number four, the future krinos of the saints. It's a strange thought to think that we will krino. We will sit on thrones and krino. Like, how, do, how does that work? What, what is that going to look like? I'm not exactly sure that I can describe what eternity is going to be like and how this is all going to play out. It just says it. A krinos that the saints of God are being prepared for and will exert as an extension of God's krinos. Number five, a false and improper krinos. So this is the bad boy. This is what God is so against. We're going to call it a false and improper krinos, a usurped judgeship. That's not your position, buddy. You should not be bringing judgment in this matter. Do not crino. What's it talking about? A false and improper crino. A crinos that presumptuously labors outside its set jurisdiction. It's not on its summer spot. Jurisdictions must be respected. So here we are in 2 Corinthians 10, and Paul is talking. Listen to how he refers to jurisdiction. It's really interesting. 
We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere. He actually is mentioning the concept. He doesn't use the Greek word. The Greek word jurisdiction doesn't exist. However, he's referring to the concept of jurisdiction. But within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, or the jurisdiction, he gave us a ruling territory. A sphere or a jurisdiction which especially includes you. He's saying, you guys are in my jurisdiction. For we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you. For it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ. Isn't that fascinating? Just to see Paul articulate it and say, look, I have a jurisdiction and you're in it. Therefore, I'm responsible and you should submit to that. So here's a couple or a few illustrations of improper crinoing. A child should not attempt to rule, decide, and bring authoritative decision upon his parents. Not a, not a good idea. You have a little child who's very young and immature. They should not be put in charge of parents. Okay? The modern parenting techniques, by the way, that's what happens, which is why I would encourage you to go back to biblical parenting techniques. A parent should not attempt to rule, decide, and bring authoritative decision on someone else's child. Have you ever been disciplined by someone else other than your parents? When I was growing up, I had this one situation that is so stark in my memory of a Thanksgiving day where this one man was visiting with his family, and I did something that aggravated him, and he basically disciplined me. At my own house, when my parents were somewhere else, this man came into my parents' house and disciplined me. I was so upset over this. But it's hard as a young child to be able to articulate why this is so wrong. But even a child knows how wrong it is. I am not your child is what's screaming outside of me, even though I'm just upset. I was so shocked by it, I didn't even know what to do. And I still remember it to this day. You see, it was a violated jurisdiction. Was the man correct? Probably. Was I being disobedient? Was I behaving poorly? Probably. But he was never entrusted with the jurisdiction to do that. Have you ever noticed that parents can leave their house and entrust a jurisdiction to someone watching their kids? Yeah, you can do that. But it's actually a trust given, typically communicated to the children too. We're putting so-and-so in charge. If you disobey, I'm giving them the right to call me or to do this. In other words, it's a handed-off jurisdiction. And children can respect that. But that was wrong. And we know it. All of us know it. Every kid in here could go, yeah. <laughs> Even though they might not be able to give this message, they could say, yeah, that is wrong. The civil government shouldn't spank a child for not cleaning his room. It just makes sense, doesn't it? And you could say, but the, the civil government is big. They have power. They have power for what their jurisdiction is, but they do not have the right, according to our Constitution, to reach into your living room and do something that is under your jurisdiction. It is not their business. The civil government should not dictate to a soul what it should believe. You can't come and take the church's role, and ironically, even the church can't command someone to believe something. What jurisdiction is that? That's the individual soul. The individual soul is appealed to by the Spirit of God. And that individual soul must make a choice. I can't make a choice for you. The civil government cannot force you to believe something. They've tried many times throughout history to do these things, and the church has done this too. 
mandated Christian Christianity. Well, that doesn't work. It's not how it functions. The church government should not step in and violate family government. The civil government should not intervene in church discipline or home discipline. A business government should not interfere in the issues of church or government or family. What a strange thing if uh, Apple Computers decides to suddenly invade into your family business. Hey, this isn't your place. What are you doing here? You see, we have spheres of authority. When we understand that, we know better what our business is and how to stay within it. So finding your summer spot, learning to mind your own business. In the issues of souls, we have a very, very small role, but we have a role. And oftentimes, especially in the church, here we are, we're a discipleship training. You guys are being groomed for leadership in this world. You will have jurisdiction. It's going to increase. It's just what's going to happen. But as that increases, you need to always remember your place and to mind your own business. Your business is not what God does in a soul. Your business is to facilitate what God is doing. And so anytime you come to a banquet and there's a high place at the table and a low place at the table, you always choose the low. Always. And you can say, but I'm an important person now. I have paid my dues, and I am now respected by the world and the community, it doesn't matter. You still always take the low place. Our job is to remember our place and to make sure we always remember his place. He is the one that changes souls. He is the one that brings the increase. We're planters and waterers. That's what we are. But we're not the ones that actually bring life. Let's remember our role. We are merely servants in this agenda. He is the king of kings. We are sheep. He's the shepherd. May we not try and pretend that we are the shepherd. We are merely an instrument that God uses, but he will expand our judging territory, and there will be others underneath it, but we must handle those other souls with a great dexterity, a spiritual dexterity, a wisdom that comes from heaven, a gentleness, a grace, a mercy, and a kindness. The secret to minding your own business well. Well, let's first define what our business or our judging territory is. So you may not have a ministry. You may not have a family or a marriage, but you have a judging territory. Your first order of business is your own personal rescue in Jesus. You see, if you have not made judgment on the matter of your own soul and what you believe, you need to do some crinoing. You need to make a decisive decision. You need to be a judge in your soul to say, gavel down. This soul believes in Jesus. So you may not have a big influence, but you have the opportunity to make a decision and to make it now and to make a decision for Jesus Christ. Make a firm judgment on Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. So what's your business? To believe. You believe. That's your business. That's your jurisdiction. You could say, what's the jurisdiction of a six-month-old? Their blanket. What's your jurisdiction? Believe. Like, that's it? Well, that's a lot. You tried it? (laughs) Have you watched consistently with it? You guys have been here eight weeks, and you know how challenging that is. There's a thousand things that will try and contradict what you are doing. You hold your ground and hold your position, and you believe. You make that decisive judgment within your soul. 
Your second order of business, it's your own plank. You see, you believe in Jesus, and what does he begin to deal with? Other people's specs? Oh, no. He's dealing with your plank. You see, you can't see clearly. His desire for you is to set you free from your own planks. Why? So that you would be useful to him to help remove specs. However, he can't have you remove specs until you are plankless. So he needs to deal with your plank. Are you willing to allow him to do that? So this is a territory that is now increasing within your life. Make a firm judgment on the word of God and its judgments concerning the devil, sin, and the flesh. God made judgment on the devil's sin in the flesh. Are you willing to agree in your own soul with those judgments and say they are wrong and I will not allow them in this body? What he did on that cross is sufficient for me. You make a judgment, gavel down in your soul. I believe. I believe it was sufficient. I believe in his judgment that when he judged the devil, he was right in his judgment that the devil deserved to be judged. I agree with his judgment on sin. I believe that it is wrong and it is against his holy nature. And I agree with the fact that I was separated eternally from him for my sin. My sin is wrong. It is an affront and a rebellion against my God. I agree. Judgment. I am a sinner in need of a savior. But I believe gavel down. And I am saved according to the word of God and the promise given to me. You need to make decisive decision within your soul of what you believe. You want to know what your business is? It's that. There's a lot of problems in the world. I recognize that. But those problems will not be solved as long as you have planks in your eye. You must see clearly to help remove those specks out of other people's eyes. But to do that, you must be plankless. And to be plankless, you need to make a judgment on who Jesus is. You need to make a judgment on the cross. You need to be, make a judgment on what is available to you in Jesus Christ. So God cannot lie, and therefore his word cannot lie. His word declares judgment on the devil, sin, and the flesh. The prince of this world is judged. Jesus condemned sin in the flesh and crucified our old man with him on the cross that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Therefore, let not sin reign in your mortal body that you would obey it in the lust thereof. Make a judgment on that. Do you agree? Do you agree that God cannot lie and that that is God's word? And you have to make a decisive judgment in your soul with where you stand on this matter. Sin no longer has power over my life. My old man, my old behavior is actually condemned, judged, and crucified. It's past tense. It's done. And I'm going to live accordingly now in faith, in the faith of Jesus Christ. Number three, the speckless life is merely the outflow of allowing God to remove the planks. We have a tough time removing our own planks. I don't know if you've figured that out yet. Any of the men in here that have struggled with a cyclical pattern of sexual defeat, you ever tried to remove that, that plank? I'm going to conquer this. I'm going to overcome this. You, you can't do it. But there is one who can. And he already has defeated it. But you're still looking to your own strength. You need to know your position. Your position isn't to overcome sin. That's his position. Your work isn't the cross. That's his work. You need to mind your business and sit on your summer spot, which is to believe that his work is sufficient. That his work is able it's a, it's, a, it's a log with a little blue chalk on it. You sit down on that and you mind your own business. My job is to trust that his work did it. I am not the one that has to do it. 
He did it. You make a judgment on that matter. You're definitive in your soul on that matter. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Test all things, hold fast what is good. Take heed that no one deceives you. These are judging actions, by the way. Test all things. Well, how rude is that? That you're going to test everything and examine it. You're not supposed to do that. Judge not. No, you must judge. But this is within your business. This is within your jurisdiction. You see, something is trying to creep into your soul and your mind. And God says, take every thought captive to the will of Christ Jesus. I don't want to be rude to those thoughts. When a lustful thought comes, I mean, I don't want to judge it. You must judge it. You must make decision that that is not of God. God has judged it at the cross. You can stand in agreement with his judgment. It's already judged. But there are certain things that aren't judged yet. And you should not judge that. But there are certain things that are clear. And you must stand in agreement with the righteous judge. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Take heed that no one deceives you. Let two or three prophets speak. Let the others judge. Ouch. They search the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Are they allowed to do that? That sounds rude. What if they find out that it's not so? They have to make a judgment, don't they? They have to make a decision. But that decision is not arbitrary. That decision is coming through the clear lens of Scripture. Let God speak. When he speaks, his words are true. I know your works. You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. Well, how did they find them liars? How would they have found them liars? They tested them. Are they allowed to do that? You must do that. But not according to your own thinking with, with planks in your eyes, but according to the thinking of the word of God. How do we know that? It's called scripture. We're submitting to God's judgment. We're submitting to his truth. And we say, but that's right. And that's what we heed. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil. So now your third order of business. Seek to save. So we started out with the fact that you must make a judgment on Jesus and him crucified. It's your own soul. Then you must allow God to remove planks. You must make a judgment on sin. The same judgment Jesus made on it, fair trial given, and you say, this is wrong. And the way I'm behaving is incorrect. And you bring that proper judgment, and you allow the spirit of grace to begin to remove and to purge these things from you, to cleanse and wash you from all sin. And then he says, and let not sin therefore reign in this mortal body any longer. You repent, you turn from it, you leave it all behind, and you give your life unto a new king. Well, what's our third order of business? We need to seek to save. Just like Jesus, your first business is not to judge, it is to seek to save. So you now have planks out of your eyes, but with the plankless eye, your job is not to judge, your job is to save. And even if in your saving, rescue work, 
You are given greater judging territory. Still, your primary job is to seek to save even through your judging. How did Jesus save us? In and through his judging. That's the same with us. You know that in a church environment, one of the hardest things I deal with is the judging aspect of the church. It is extremely hard from a leadership vantage point to have to make decision that affects a body, to have to work through church discipline. It is painful. It is extremely challenging. And yet, what am I doing when I'm making decision to judge and to remove someone maybe from from the body? What, What am I doing? I'm seeking to save the body. I'm seeking to save it from a cancer, to remove that out. And what am I doing for even that person? It even says in Scripture that by doing it, they might, be, they might see. They might be awakened. You see, if I turn a blind eye and say, oh, I just won't pay attention to that. You know what I'm doing for the body? I'm allowing a cancer to increase within it. And what am I doing for that soul? I'm turning a blind eye and giving consent to their behavior. There's no conviction. There's no rectifying of what is wrong. You see, we as the body of Christ are responsible when we're given a position of jurisdiction to actually walk faithfully in it according to Scripture. How will you know when to judge? How to recognize your judging terror and how not to judge outside of it? First, let's more closely examine what makes certain kinds of judging so wrong. Two key issues that, if off, make for a disaster in your own soul and the souls of others. Number one, it is not your place to bring decision into reckon punishment. If you step outside of your jurisdiction, you're that one dad that disciplines Eric Ludy at Thanksgiving, You know that that wreaked havoc upon my life? I mean, it disturbed me at such a deep level. And I I probably, I mean, I haven't even thought about it since then, but I probably need to freshly forgive the guy. You know, here I'm bringing it up like, yeah, I can't believe he did that. Well, maybe I need to address that. But in other words, it's bait for a young soul, for resentment, for bitterness. It's shock to a soul. It actually causes harm when you judge improperly. You know that when a child is properly disciplined, they're happier? When they're properly disciplined, it might not be fun, but it frees their soul because it cleanses their conscience. And for a young child, that's the means of removing guilt. They don't understand yet fully the blood of Jesus. And so the way in which you're able to help their soul is through proper discipline. And actually, they're happy and uh, jumping around if you are bringing proper discipline. If you bring improper discipline, it does the opposite. It's a form of torment and torture to a soul. Number two. If that judgment or that uh, jurisdictional territory uh, of control is born of the flesh and not of the spirit of love, and therefore it's an evil form of judgment, if you are born of the flesh in your judging, you are wreaking havoc upon your own soul and upon the souls of others. Even if you have the position. You know how many pastors have abused their position? And they have brought improper fleshly judging. They have the quote-unquote position, but they're not wielding it in accordance with the spirit. You know how many fathers have misused their judging territory and have abused their children? You know how many fathers have abused, or I'm sorry, husbands have abused their position with their wife and have brought terrible harm upon their wife? They have misused their judging territory. And if you do that, I tell you what, I think the penalty is pretty stout. It's as if a teacher is mishandling their students. They have been given a position, and if they mishandle that, it's better that a millstone was tied around their neck. And they were thrown into the depths of the sea, is it? You see, we do not mishandle that territory that we've been given. Recognizing the flesh and judging. So for those of you who say, well, I don't want to judge improperly. 
how do I know? Well, let's go through this. We're going to go through seven common fleshly operations behind improper judging. The first one is pride, and it's the kingpin. One of the reasons why we have improper judging is because of an arrogance of soul, a pride. The preservation of self's agenda, the fleshly cry of please notice me, applaud me, and make me your first love. A willingness to stomp on others that you might be more clearly seen. And so what will you do? You'll bring judgment on others to remove them from the situation so that you would be seen more clearly. Anyone threatens your position, what will you do? You'll bring judgment on them to remove them as a potential competition. Pride leads to a lot of bad judging. Number two, fault finding. We could call it criticism. When you are struggling with fault finding, you notice that you could have, it happens with married couples all the time. You marry someone you love and you can see no fault in them. And the next thing you know, all you can see is their fault. You see, you're blind to virtue and you fixate on fault. It's a very, very dangerous thing. And what can you do? If you judge from that position, you make decision from that position, you oftentimes destroy not only your own life, but the lives of those around you. Number three, tattling. Little kid word, I know. But it's accusation. It's a tale-bearer. In other words, did you see what they did? You know, this is a classic thing that when you have a household of young kids, you deal with. And so you have to remind them that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He's the tale-bearer. He's the tattler. In other words, a tattler is wanting to see someone else punished. They, they're not actually wanting virtue and purity and life and love. They actually want to see vengeance on the one who stole their Lego. And so as a result... This is an improper judging. Supplying information with the singular desire to bring punishment to someone else. Number four, reviling. Beholding someone with contempt, sneering at every action, rolling your eyes at their every word, withholding love, grace, mercy, and forgiveness. If you judge from a soul condition of revilement, very, very dangerous things come out of that. Number five, hating. Desiring someone's destruction. If you're in a judging position and you hate someone, you know what? Only bad things happen when you make decisions from that mentality. Number six, resenting, refusing to forgive, refusing to look past a fault. If any of you have been hurt in your life, you know that one deadness of soul that can enter in when someone is, is dealing in your life. And there's, you see, in my position, imagine that there was a resentment or something that happened, and I make a decision that would actually harm them in, say, a departure from Ellerslie. Well, that is extremely dangerous. If there is resentment, even at the slightest levels in our decision-making, it literally will subvert the entire church. This is of extreme importance that these things are not allowed into our decision-making processes. Number seven, jealousy. Destroying someone out of a wanton lust for what the person possesses. And this happens all the time. I mean, unfortunately, one of my favorite characters in the Bible, King David, destroyed Uriah the Hittite, sent him to the front lines because he wanted what Uriah the Hittite had, which was a woman named Bathsheba. Very dangerous use of judging territory. And God did not stand for it. We must recognize that improper judging is abhorrent to the kingdom of heaven. And yet, in light of that, we are still called to judge. 
The judging actually isn't the problem. It's the flesh motive behind it. It's the plank-eyed judging that God hates. So now let's look at the spirit. So we have the flesh and the spirit. They're at enmity with each other. When the flesh judges and uses its position of influence improperly, it's a disgusting thing. But what if the spirit is judging? What does it look like? Oh, I forgot the subtitle. Seven heavenly attributes of Christ evidenced in true judging. Number one, humility. Remember the last list? It was pride. What if you are a leader and you've been given jurisdiction, but you rule over that jurisdiction with humility? It's a yearning for Christ to be seen more clearly and for the lives around you to find their true fulfillment in his love and grace. Number two, hope. A constant thought that salvation is just up ahead, even for the dirtiest, most rotten scoundrels. You see, as a leader, you may be hurt by people around you. But if there's hope, to say, but God can still reach them. God can still help them. Lord Jesus, may you do them good. May you bless them, even though they may be cursing you. You see, this is how a Christian functions. Number three, faith. A knowing that God's word is powerful and two-edged. And if believed and administered properly, will not return without effect. Number four, a willingness to suffer harm and wrong in order that others might find life. A true yearning to see others find life, love, and liberty in Jesus Christ. If this is your motivation for how you are judging, everything changes. If this is how you run your home, it's a great home. You still need leadership that makes decision. But if they are making decision out of these motivations, there is life in that home. Kindness. A warmth of manner that befits the nature of the king of kings. Slow to anger, quick to forgive, always eager to offer the mercies of God toward the repentant and always desirous to see the unrepentant soften and turn from their wickedness. Anguish. It ought to hurt to bring about discipline and to issue punishment. If you find delight in bringing about discipline and punishment, something's wrong. You see, it ought to be anguish in your soul to walk through the process because you truly love them and you want to see them set free from that which is hindering their life. There should never be a delight in seeing men suffer for their sin. Number seven, courage. It takes a lot of courage to administer the truth of Jesus Christ, whether that be in a soul, a home, a church, a business, or a civil sphere. True judging is always against the flow and always difficult. If you're judging correctly, you have to have courage because you're not going to really want to do what is right in that situation because to do what is right in that situation is the hard thing. The judging test. So here are the simple questions. Is it your position to judge? Now you would have to whip this list out in every situation you're going through. Like say you're going home to a church, and you see some things in that church that just aren't healthy. Well, so let's ask this question. Is it your position to judge? Whose jurisdiction is it? It's highly likely that you're not an elder in the church or the pastor of the church. So how do you deal with these things? Do you just ignore it? Well, and that's part of the challenge. First, find your summer spot. It's a little log with blue chalk on. You sit down on that summer spot and you mind your own business. First, you have to define what your business is. When you know your business, you know that those people around you are part of your range. And so, in a sense, they are, but the ruling over it in church governance is not your range. However, there's something known as appeal. 
And if you work properly within your business, you will then be respectful to the business around you. And if that's a church, then what you do is you come and appropriately, with humility, you can make an appeal maybe to an elder. Maybe your dad's an elder. Maybe you know someone else that is an elder, and you say, I just had a concern. I wanted to at least lay this before you for you to consider and to pray about. Meanwhile, what do you do? You pray. That's what you always do. That's in your business. That is your territory. You've seen something. Pray about it. If God leads you to appeal, then you appeal. But you might not need to stand up, push the pastor off the stage, grab the microphone, and yell, Ichabod, the Spirit of God has departed! Please, if you're thinking about doing that in here, let's talk first. Number two, is there a void of leadership? If so, is it your place to step in, or is there someone to whom an appeal could be made? It's a challenge, especially for those of us that are wired to be leaders. When you see a void of leadership, the natural instinct is to step right into it. But you need to ask, is it my business? Is that what God is leading me to do, or am I taking that position? You know that Jesus did not take any of his jurisdiction upon himself? You know that he was exalted into it? The Father gave him that. And he's likened unto Aaron. Aaron did not take the priesthood. God gave it to him. Your jurisdiction is not something that you claim. You take the lowest place. You are called up to a higher seat. The seat that God gives you must be given you by him. That's a critical dimension. And so when you see a void of leadership, it is really hard. But you need to sit in your summer spot and say, God, what do you need me to do? Is that something I'm supposed to do? It might be. But just make sure you sit and mind your own business first. Do you have planks in your eye? If so, deal with those so that you can see clearly to sit in that seat that is bigger than the seat you've ever sat in before. Number three, what is your heart condition? Are you seeking to genuinely save or are you secretly seeking to see someone punished? So when you're making decision. You honestly have to assess in your judging. Are you truly judging to see someone saved or are you judging to get back at someone? If you are upset, if any father in here ever disciplines out of anger, their judging is wrong because they're not judging properly. They're not judging out of love. They're not judging to see benefit and salvation come to a soul. They're judging because they're irritated, they're frustrated, they're mad. That does not produce good fruit in any child. And as a result, there must be a pause. There must be an evaluation. You say, whose jurisdiction is it? All right, it's mine. I'm a father. All right, so it is my jurisdiction. There isn't a void of leadership. I'm here. All right. Am I seeking to genuinely save my child, or am I secretly seeking to see them punished? Hmm. It's a good question. Let us make sure that our motive is being monitored by the Spirit of grace. And that when we do our judging, we do it truly the way God would do it. Number four is your judging of the Spirit of God. Is it in humility? Is it in love? Is it in truth? Is it in fear and trembling? Is the Word of God your basis or your own human philosophies and or social sensitivities your guide? For those of you that will lead churches in the future, this is critical. You cannot just lean on what other churches do. You cannot lean on what society will consider politically correct. You have to do what the Bible says. And if you do what the Bible says in regards to church discipline, it gets very uncomfortable at times. However, 
that is your rule, that is your guide. And you do it in humility, in love, in truth, and in the fear of God. How does one's judging territory increase? And so Hudson started out at zero age, and he had zero jurisdiction. And yet here he is at eight and a half, and he has jurisdiction. It's limited, but he has jurisdiction. He has responsibility. He has territory that he is able to be over. Now, it's audited, and it's maintained, and it's overseen by mommy and daddy. But did you know that's actually fairly impressive to see a little guy grow and to gain more territory? Well, how does it happen? How does territory increase? Well, there's a principle in Scripture. Prove faithful with little, and you'll be given more. And so that's the principle of jurisdictional increase. Only God increases the krenos territory of a man. So a lot of us try and increase our own territory. Think about how we're raised in America. We're raised to have power and position. And so what do you need to do to get it? Well, you should go to an Ivy League school. If you can get into an MBA program like this, uh, one overseas like this, you will get a position. You see, if you're going to have influence over society, you want to potentially consider a legal degree and then maybe a run in politics. If you can do that, or you could also go through this channel or this channel. We know how it works. We're looking for the highest seat. We're looking to stake claim to our own jurisdiction. A Christian functions completely opposite of that. We seek the lowest place. Jesus became a worm and no man. He became obedient unto death. Even the death of a criminal, the death of a cross. That is extraordinary. And it says... And God highly exalted him. He took the lowest place and got the highest seat. You know what we do? We go after the highest seat and end up with the lowest place. So for us, we must recognize that the way that our jurisdiction will truly increase, because you could be over the entire church of Jesus Christ in the world today, but not be assigned that position by God. Not be equipped and anointed for that position by God. You can say, how does that work? It's just a work of man. That could happen. You have the charisma, you have the right personality, and the church is rather dull at the moment, and they fell for it. But you don't actually have the substance of soul. You are not worthy of that position. You have a plank in your eye. You are not right for that position. As a result, the church is weak because its leaders are weak. They still have planks in their eyes. God save us from such a state. But what if all of us agreed to go after the lowest position? There's one seat, and all of us are trying to get into it. Hey, that's my seat. That's the lowest seat. Let God grow us up. Are we willing to enter into a cocoon of anonymity and let the wings of leadership grow in a state of humility as opposed to posturing, networking, doing all our things to massage the system of our reputation that we could gain and grasp and take Something that is not our business. It's a blue log with some chalk on it. We need to sit in it and mind our own business, which is to be small, to be sheep, to be devoted, to believe that he is able. And if he wants to use your life, which, by the way, he does, he will give you position. He will say, come up higher. You see this seat? And you'll say, me? You want me? I I can't do it. Remember Moses? He tried to get the seat, killed an Egyptian, buried him in the ground. 
And God says, no, no. We need to put you at the end for a while. Goes into the wilderness. Forty years later, after sitting at the end of the table in the lowest seat, God says, hmm, I think you're ready now. And he's like, ah, I can't do it. He says, hmm, you are ready. You see, it's when you know that you can't that you are truly ready to be a flow-through channel for the one who can. You understand your place, your position, your business. Your business is to be small so that he can be big. You decrease so that he can increase. It's not you increasing, grasping for high seats so that he will be seen. It's you being willing to take the low seats so that he will be seen. So he told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, give place to this man. Oof, that's awkward. That would be a hard moment. You take the high seat and the king comes in and says, could you give up your seat and take a lower seat? I need to bring someone else that's more honorable up here. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Well, that's Philippians chapter 2. That's exactly what Jesus did. He humbled himself and was exalted. Who are you in? What's your location? This is his pattern. He did not take a judging territory for himself. The Father made him the judge. And he was put above all with all things under his feet. His jurisdiction is entire, thorough, complete, but he gained it by taking the lowest place. Do not exalt yourself in the presence of the king and do not stand in the place of the great, for it is better that he say to you, come up here, than that you should be put lower in the presence of the prince whom your eyes have seen. And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest. Number two. God has revealed that the Krenos increase requirements. God has said, this is how, in the church, we increase judging territory. He has given the requirements of elders, bishops, deacons, and overseers in the church. And it is the church's responsibility to select their leadership based on God's standards rather than the world's. And he said unto him, well done, thou good servant. Because thou hast been faithful in very little, Have thou authority over ten cities. And this is how we parent. Well done, little one. Because you have proven faithful with that job, I'm going to give you a bigger job. Because you were able to walk down to the mailbox and look both ways and handle yourself well in a street, I'm going to give you the ability to bike on that same street. Even without mommy and daddy with you. But even when he does it the first time, I might be watching. I might be monitoring. But then he comes back and I say, well done, good and faithful child. In other words, we increase when we see faithfulness with little. 
But we do not increase, by the way. If you're a good parent, you know this to be true. You will actually remove jurisdiction from a child that is abusing it. And they have to then earn trust back to gain that position again. Well, God is a better father than even we are. So as a result, don't you think he knows how to father us? He's not going to give jurisdiction to someone who's stumbling and fumbling around with the little that they've been entrusted. First you prove faithful with little, then you'll be given authority over more. For if a man knows not how to rule well his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Is that a no-brainer or what? And yet, in the church of Jesus Christ today, we pick our men based on their scholarship, based on their charisma and their ability to speak, and how interesting they are when they speak. We do not measure them based on the measurements that God himself prescribes in Scripture. If you're going to put someone over you, make sure that they have tended well to the first jurisdictions. Do not put an eight-year-old over the church. Not because in the future he's not going to be able to rule it, but he's not yet ready, and it's not a diminishment of the eight-year-old. It's saying he's not yet ready, and the eight-year-old needs to know his place so that he's not think more highly of himself than he ought, so that he knows his position, he knows how to sit on that little log with blue chalk and mind his own business while he's young. But then he can grow up and get more and more jurisdictional territory and ultimately grow and become an adult and then even get married and have children and then be entrusted with the care of the flock of Christ. But he will do it with a holy reverence and the fear of God to say, and I must handle this well because if you handle it wrong, you lose it. We've been given a trust. And right now your jurisdiction may be small. Some of you in here, your jurisdiction may be quite large. In fact, uncomfortably large for you. And yet, God will give you the grace today to begin to judge rightly within that territory. First, he must judge his own soul and body well, according to the pattern of Scripture. Then he is fit to judge more, marriage and family. So when is a man or a woman ready to be married? Well, if you ask me, I'd say, well, how are you judging your own life? How are you handling your thought life? How are you handling the disciplines of your day? Are you controlled by the flesh during the day? Are the self-sins still ruling in your body? If so, you need a season of allowing Jesus Christ to be the king, to rule your body well. You need to come under his jurisdiction, and you need to allow him to remove planks from your eyes so that you can see clearly for this next stage of marriage and family. But if a man is or a woman is showing faithfulness in that first jurisdiction, absolutely. You know, they could be young. An 18-year-old is not too young if they are showing that maturity. However, there are 40-year-olds that are still not mature enough for that step. But it has to do with how they are handling that first jurisdiction. Second, he must judge his own marriage and family well according to the pattern of Scripture. Then he is fit to judge more, the church and civil government. You know that I would say the same thing about civil government. I wouldn't want someone over our government if they can't handle their own family well. Why would I expect them to run the government well? Isn't that an interesting question? It's a fairly good test. Third, he must judge his own flock well according to the pattern of Scripture. Then he is fit to judge more, carry the governance of a greater responsibility within the body of Christ. Not just one church, but he might be entrusted with two churches, three churches, ten churches, five hundred churches. The great twist 
Okay, here's how we finish. This is a great twist for the very end. We said, mind your own business. We are called to mind other people's business. What? You know that it's actually a commission of Scripture? That we are called to mind other people's business? Let's read it. Philippians 2. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, on his own business, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. However, do you understand what that means with lowliness of mind? In other words, it's not just, well, what about me? I need to be cared for. It's no, how can I help? How can I be of servants? When Jesus' mind was on us, he wasn't judging. He was saving. He was saying they need help. God, take of my strength and give it to them. That's what it means. So when you are minding someone else's business in the proper way, you are not judging them and crossing over your jurisdiction into theirs and sticking your nose in their matters. What you're doing is saying, God, I have a burden for them. I want to see them succeed. I want to see them strong. Use me to serve them. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. And he was made in the likeness of men and being found in a fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him. And given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth. And things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. It's a little log with blue chalk on it. Each of us needs to sit in our summer spot. I figured this is a great time to give it because it's summer. If it was fall it could be our fall spot. But we need to sit in our summer spot and mind our own business. Some of us are too quickly looking into the business of others, looking into the business of a church or a business or the politics around us. And we are bringing judgment, assessment, critique, criticism, accusation, tattling, revilement, hatred. We're a mess. Meanwhile, we have planks in our own eyes. The very thing we're accusing them of doing, we're doing. It's a little log with blue chalk on it. We sit down in our summer spot. Let's mind our own business. We mind our own business well, and their business may become our business. And God may put us into a position where we actually can make decision that changes a family, that changes a church, that changes business, that changes a nation, get this, that changes the world. That's what we're being built for. That's what this is preparation for. See, Hudson, when he's 80, is still only being prepped for what he's going to do for all eternity. He's going to be crinoing. He's going to be judging with the authority of the judge of judges. I don't know how that works. All I know is this is a preparation season. And how we are faithful in this season will define what we receive in the next and what we're ready for in the next. Take the lowest place. Learn to sit there and mind your business well, and God will raise you up. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy. 
pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.